how should a world, uh, how should we react to a world that seems increasingly hostile to Christians? Now, I'm not a pessimist. I do think the world can go up and down. We see cycles, don't we, through history, that sometimes the world's been sort of against Christians. Sometimes the world's been quite positive towards Christians. We sort of see things go up and down. But in recent years, it's definitely been a sort of downward trend, hasn't it? In recent years, there's been chilling effects on Christians speaking out in public life for fear of being ridiculed or fear of even worse, breaking the law. Just in the last few weeks, the new leader of the DUP in Northern Ireland, Edwin Poots, has been ridiculed for his views on creation. Scottish Finance Secretary Kate Forbes uh, from the SNP has also spoken about the challenges that she faces in speaking out as a person in public life with her views on marriage and abortion. And similar struggles are faced, aren't they, across the political spectrum. Street preachers now are regularly detained for preaching on issues viewed as taboo. And whilst their method and choice of subject might not always be uh, the most helpful, it does have a knock-on effect for everybody else, doesn't it, as we see these things happening in the news. So what do we do when we face abuse and when we face ridicule? Well, we saw part of the answer last week, how as living sacrifices were not to take revenge. We're to bless those who seek to hurt us. We read last week, didn't we, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. We see actually loving and serving our enemies is one of the responses that we make. Well, this week we're going to look at the second part of the answer. It's sandwiched in the middle of that section on not taking revenge. People have accused Paul, the writer here, of being a bit of a scatterbrain. It seems as though he sort of jumps from taking revenge and those sorts of things and then sort of gives a few random commands. But actually, Paul's not jumping about at random here. We're looking at verses 15 and and 16 here, where it talks about rejoicing with those who rejoice, living in harmony with one another. It sounds like he's talking about the church again. So is he sort of jumping around? Well, there's a reason that these commands about relationships with each other as Christians are sandwiched here in a section about our relationship with an often hostile world. This is how we're to respond as believers in the context of a hostile world. Last week was how we treat the people who are being hostile. And this week is how we treat each other in the church, in the light of people being hostile to us. This is how the church should respond on the inside to pressure from the outside. So what do we do internally in the church as pressure grows from the outside. We've got three points this morning. The first one is stand together. Have a look at the beginning of verse 16 with me, right in the centre of our passage. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. How do we respond? Well, here at the heart of the passage is that phrase to live in harmony with one another. This is what this whole little section there, sandwiched in the middle, is all about. Now, like Steve, I'm a bit disappointed when I came to prepare this passage. I've got all these illustrations based about music and harmony, and I was going to quote Stevie Wonder and all those sorts of things, you know, different people playing different parts. Imagine my disappointment when I discovered actually the word harmony isn't there, unfortunately, not in the original. Literally, what it says is be thinking the same to one another. Be thinking the same 
to one another. Some other translations have it, be in agreement with one another, or be of the same mind towards one another. That's the most common translation. This is not so much to do with music as the mind, the attitude. It's what we do with our renewed mind. If you remember in verse 2, we saw that God has renewed our minds. Well, this is what we do with them. This is how a Christian community thinks together. This is the attitude of the church, especially in the light of an often hostile world. We are to think of each other. We are to stick together. The attitude that we should have is one that aims at agreement with one another, with other believers. That's why they've translated it harmony, that idea of getting on with each other. That's the goal here. As the world tries to tear us apart, we need to make the effort to stick together with other genuine believers for mutual love, for mutual support. And I think that's termed better by standing together, really, than by harmony. You see, harmony, when I think of it, it makes me sort of think of like sitting on a cloud somewhere playing a harp. I don't know how you, that's more guitar, isn't it? I don't know how you, I've never played a harp. But uh, that idea of something where you sort of float above the situation, yeah? But here it's very much standing with each other. Being of the same mind with one another. It's supporting one another in the mess. It's standing with one another rather than sort of standing above one another. Paul wants us to stand together with the same mind. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's letters, then you might know there's one to the Philippians, and it sort of reminds you of chapter 2, doesn't it, a bit? It's also written in the context of increasing hostility in chapter 2 of Philippians. You'll see it on the back of your notice sheet, Philippians 2, 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And just a few verses earlier, he puts it in this language of standing together in the face of opposition. Philippians 1.27, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. What he's talking about here is solidarity. Solidarity in the face of persecution. Someone was asking last week how these verses work out with nation states. You can sort of think about countries sort of banding together. They did it once on a national level. Before there was the Justice League or even the Champions League, there was the Smalkaldic League. Go and Google it later, have a look on Wikipedia. It was a group of Protestant states that put their differences aside and decided to defend one another from attackers on the outside during the Reformation. But that's not really what it's talking about here in terms of solidarity. It's not sort of a military coalition. What it's talking about here is solidarity on a, on a local level, on an individual level. The verses around it spell out how we are to show solidarity to each other as individual Christians. I think there are applications for churches too, as we stand together with like-minded churches, but really the focus of it is on individuals. You see, the devil wants to divide and conquer, doesn't he? He wants to divide individual churches. 
for churches to fight and split and make less of an impact on the world as a result. He wants to give the world an excuse to point at us and dismiss us because we're just acting the same way as everyone else does, or even worse in some cases. If you think about it through history, it's normally internal strife, isn't it, that splits churches and breaks them up, rather than external persecution. Churches that have stood against uncountable odds to stay faithful from the outside, all those attacks, fall apart over trivial things like furniture, or more recently, masks and music. Sometimes there's not even really an issue at all, it's just a clash of personalities. Either way, the devil knows the best tactic is to attack from within as well as from without. So we need to stand together if we are to survive in a world that would rather that we didn't exist. So how do we stand together in a world that would rather that we weren't there? How do we stand as a kingdom of light, as a little outpost of the kingdom, in a sea of encroaching darkness in the world around us? Well, we've got two other points this morning, and really they're the how. They they form the bit around this central point. Two ways. We stand together, firstly, by sharing joys and pains. By sharing joys and pains. Have a look at verse 15 with me. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. One of the ways that we stand together in an often hostile world is by sharing our joys and pains with each other. When one is weeping, we should share their grief. When someone is celebrating, we should share their joy. We're part of a body together, we're part of a family Paul said in verse 5 that we're members of one another. If you remember, that was even stronger, wasn't it? The members of the body of Christ. He says we're members of one another. We're linked together, connected. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul puts it like this. 1 Corinthians 12. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. We're connected to each other. We belong to one another. We partner, we share with one another. And that means sharing joys and sharing pains. And it's right to do that, especially in the context of persecution. Because persecutors don't weep with the people that they're persecuting, do they? They don't rejoice when they're released, do they? So we need to find those things from within the church. But as a whole, we find this hard. Two reasons, I think. Individualism and hypocrisy. Individualism, because in our country we tend to identify as individuals. And the fact that that sounds weird that I'm even saying that shows you how much we've sort of taken it in. What I mean is that we think of ourselves in relation not to anybody else, but to ourselves, our own mind, our own psychology. If you ask the question, who am I? The answer is... I am what's in my brain. But there's a sense in which if you go back a few hundred years, that would not be the answer. Who you are would be defined by your relationship to others in your community, your place in the world. So I'm a father, or I'm a mother, or I'm the oldest person in the village, or I'm the village idiot. That would be me. But community was how you defined yourself rather than what was going on in your brain. 
And it would be quite normal in those communities to know everything about everyone. Medical issues, monetary problems, birthdays, marriages, problems with relatives. The closest thing I think we have to that now is probably what we call overshare. Mm-hmm. Don't you if you've come across this idea? Overshare, especially on social media. And the fact we call it oversharing shows that it's viewed as abnormal, doesn't it? Sharing too much with yourself about other people, well, to other people. But if we're to weep with those who weep, and we're to rejoice with those who rejoice, there does need to be a degree of openness, doesn't there? So I'm not advocating oversharing, but there does need to be some sharing, doesn't there? And that's a two-way street. It means that we need to be interested in one another enough to ask questions, doesn't it? Beyond, oh, isn't the weather nice? Or, oh, is it rain? It's not raining, don't worry. We need to go beyond that, don't we? But equally, it means that we need to be open enough to volunteer that information sometimes. And we find that uncomfortable, don't we? Interestingly, I find that we tend to be more vocal about our sorrows than about our joys. You'd think it would be the other way round, wouldn't you? But actually, it tends to be this way round. We worry a bit about boasting, I think. You know, if you're cheerful, you don't want to sort of, you know, go to people who are not cheerful and, and tell them that you're cheerful. We worry that people will be envious if we've had some good news rather than rejoice with us. And sometimes that tr- that's true, isn't it? People will be envious. But the problem is then that we end up with a big imbalance. We tend to rejoice alone or with our family and we weep with church. That tends to be what happens. But we need both in church life, don't we? Otherwise, it's like sharing your debts but not sharing your earnings. Your account's going to go empty pretty quick, isn't it? So we need to be willing to share both, both our joys and our sorrows, both with people at church, and be willing to ask about both. But too much individualism can lead us to forget that or to neglect to share. And that's one of the things that makes this hard, isn't it? The other reason we find it difficult is hypocrisy. The weeping that it's talking about is not fake crocodile tears, but genuine anguish. It's a really quite strong word with those who are feeling anguish. And what that actually means is that we need to be invested in other people's lives. Enough that actually their weeping becomes our weeping. So it's not so much a command to cry, but to care. Crying without caring is hypocrisy, isn't it? We cannot expect expect this to be telling us to to pretend to be sad when someone tells us some bad news, can we? We can't expect it to just say, you know, just pretend to be happy when people tell you that they're happy. The command implies that we genuinely are sad with people when they're sad, and we genuinely are happy when they're happy. That our happiness and their happiness are somehow entwined together. What it's really describing is a close relationship with people at church, isn't it? And that makes this command hard. So it's not fulfilled with a quick sort of knees up or party when there's been some good news or when someone gets a job. It's not fulfilled with a quick cry over a cuppa because someone is telling you a sad story as though you were crying at a film. It's something deeper than that, isn't it? It implies lives that are interwoven together. 
of a sharing of the kind that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago as we talked about partnering, of lives, of our day-to-day that we share together. Now, I know it must sound like a broken record. I know I've been saying this a lot lately as we've been going through this section. But it's there, isn't it? That close relationship. We cannot fulfil these commands without some openness in our lives, without some sharing of ourselves and our time with each other. Perhaps one of the problems that we face, I'll put problems in inverted commas, is that the persecution, the outer pressure, isn't so bad to make those relationships. In countries where it's common for families to shun Christians, it's quite normal for the church to literally become their family. That's where they get their support and help. In countries where Christianity is illegal, those relationships of love and trust have to be built. Because actually the person next to you could could dob you into the police, couldn't he? And you could dob them in. So it really means that you need to trust one another, that you need to help one another. Those bonds are formed in that environment. Pressure breaks some things, but it also forms diamonds, doesn't it, if you think about it. But we don't face that immense pressure, and it means that we need to work harder in some ways at forming those bonds together. However much pressure we face, our response should be to band together and share life's joys and pains together. And that helps us stand together. That's the first thing that we see. And then the second thing that helps us stand together is shunning pride and position. Shunning pride and position. Let me read you the second half of verse 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. If we're to stand together in a hostile world, then we need to shun pride and position. We're called here to associate with the lowly. Now the word there to associate with is really to be carried along with. It's got a notion of being grouped together with or or sort of hanging around with. You're sort of taken along with that group. It's interesting, isn't it? No No one seems to mind being associated with the rich and powerful. The recent lobbying scandal we've all seen has has been to do with that, isn't it? People paying money to have the ear of someone powerful and influential. But here we're called to associate with the lowly, the powerless, the insignificant in the world's eyes. Jesus taught this too, and he practiced it. He taught it in Luke 14, verse 13. He said this, when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind. And if you think about who Jesus was carried along with, if you like, who he hung around with, it was tax collectors, sinners, poor people, disabled people. They were the people that he welcomed into his kingdom. And they were the people that he welcomed into his friendship groups, if you like, into his life. And they're the people that we need to welcome into our lives too. And this makes it a very different game, doesn't it, to the one that the world plays. You know, the world says, you know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. That's basically what the world does. But Jesus goes on to say in those verses, they cannot repay you. That's why you're to do it. They can't scratch your back. You can only scratch theirs. But he says also that our reward reward awaits in heaven. That's why we're to do it. But I don't know about you, but as I read that, I sort of think, well, 
Is it sane then we're to see the lowly as a sort of charity case? You know, we're to deign to give them our time. Do you know what I mean? It sort of gives that impression, does it, a little bit. But not at all. The command here is also not to be haughty. Literally, not to think high thoughts of ourselves. We associate with the lowly because we recognise that we ourselves are one of the lowly ones. We're not superior people sat in castles, sort of throwing down food and things to lesser folks down there as a bit of charity. Or, you know, I'll I'll give you a bit of my time. So I don't know why I sound Southern when I say that. No offence to Southerners. This is actually about realising that we're one beggar showing another beggar where there's some bread. That's what we're doing, isn't it? We're sharing our bread with each other. And if we don't see things that way, then we need to look at ourselves in the sober light of scripture. We're a community of beggars. We're a community of sinners. We're a community of the weak. Listen to what Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may might boast in the presence of God. What Paul is saying there is that we are a community of the weak and foolish. So it's not a step down to associate with the lowly. We are the lowly. That's what it's saying. And that's okay. Because our saviour, the Lord Jesus, was lowly. After telling the Philippians to have the same mind as we saw earlier, that phrase, same phrase as live in harmony, he goes on to say in Philippians 2, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. His appeal for our humility is an appeal to Christ's humility. Christ was prepared to make himself but a servant, a nothing. He was prepared to be seen as weak. And if we want to keep this command, we must be prepared to do the same. But not just weak, foolish. If we want to stand together as as a community together, it will not do that everyone just insists on their own superior wisdom. Here's probably a number one way to destroy harmony in a church. Consider yourself wise and everyone else foolish. Or in common speak, think that you're always right and that everyone else is always wrong. That does not make for harmony. That does not make for solidarity. That does not help you stand together, does it? But how can you not think that you're right? I've puzzled over this, you know what I mean? Surely if you think something, you think you're right. Otherwise you think something else. All I would say is that if there's a danger of falling out, 
If there's a danger of breaking up unity, breaking relationships, just pause for a second and consider three things. Number one, that nobody is right 100% of the time. You get that? Nobody's right 100% of the time, apart from God. That's your, your one exception. But you're not God, so there you go. Number two, your opinion might not be 100% correct. So it might be that you're mostly right, but you might not be fully right. And number three, you may not have 100% of the information. So you might think that you're being right based on what you know, but you might not know everything. So those are three things to keep in mind. And if you're in a situation and you're thinking, I am right 100% of the time, and my opinion is 100% correct, and I do have 100% of the information, then you have just described yourself as God. That's what you've done in that situation. You've put yourself in God's place. He is really the only one who can be wise in his own eyes, because he's the only one who is truly wise. And if you think I'm wrong about this, I'd refer you to those three points that we've just said. A church full of haughty people who always think that they're right is a recipe for disaster. It will not need to harmony and solidarity, but to chaos and division. So we need to consider that other people might know what they're doing. We need to consider that other people can do things too. In other words, we need to trust people and we need to consider them above ourselves. We need to lovingly serve one another, not standing above one another looking down, but standing alongside each other looking across to help. If we're going to stand in the face of an increasingly hostile world, then we need to stand together. We need to stand alongside each other, sharing joys and pains, shunning pride and position, a fellowship aware of their weaknesses but believing in a strong God. A fellowship aware of their challenges, but believing in a God who can overcome them. So as we go out into normal life this week, let's respond with love to the world around us as we saw last week. And let's love one another genuinely and seek to build those bonds of fellowship that will sustain us when things get tougher. And let's look to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace given to us by our Saviour Jesus Christ. Let's pray for God's strength to do that. Let's pray. Father God, help us to stand together in a world that often doesn't want us to be here. Father, help us to know how to respond wisely. Help us to love the world around us. But Father, help us to love one another, weeping with those who are hurting, rejoicing with those who are rejoicing and treating others as better than ourselves. Father, give us the supernatural strength we need to do that. Keep us looking to Christ who did that and pray that we'd be more like him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.